Thanks for listening and sharing our body politic. As we grow and evolve our show, we need lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcast on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. Thanks to you, Our Body Politic is moving up the ranks in the top 100 podcast on Apple for news commentary. We're reading all your reviews because your feedback matters to us. Thanks so much. I'm Farai Chidea, and you're listening to Our Body Politic. The House of Representatives has voted to set up a select committee to investigate the insurrection of January 6th. Despite efforts to invite Republicans to participate in an investigation, GOP leaders are still calling it a partisan effort, and most voted against it. My next guest has spent the last few months exploring why this and the issue of voting rights have become so politicized. Judd Legum is the author of the daily newsletter, Popular Information. In the last few weeks, he's done some impressive investigative work digging into the companies that donate to legislators who didn't vote to certify President Biden's win back in January. Judd has years of experience observing politics. He was a research director for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign and worked at the Center for American Progress, where he founded the news site Think Progress. Welcome to Our Body Politic, Judd. Thanks for having me. So, Judd, we're coming up on six months anniversary of the insurrection at the Capitol. How do you feel the media is doing in terms of framing what needs to be talked about? I don't think we're doing that well, I would say. None of the members of Congress or members of the Senate who voted to overturn the election that day have really expressed any remorse. And... I don't think that there's been any real consequences yet. So in my view, we are letting it slip into the rearview mirror without appreciating how close the country came that day to completely falling apart. You're also doing in-depth reporting on corporations, particularly ones that are funding politicians who did not vote to certify the 2020 election results. Take us into that a little bit. What are the top issues? Well, what we saw right after January 6th was was fairly extraordinary. You had a lot of very large uh, corporations who said, we're going to put a pause on this, either put a pause on all of their donations coming out of their corporate PAC or in many cases, corporations saying we're going to put a pause on donations to the 147 Republicans who voted to overturn the election. Largely, the companies that made those pledges have stood by them, but we're starting to see a growing number of companies who are trying to evade their pledges, if not the letter of them, then the spirit, mostly by donating to multi-candidate committees that benefit those 147 Republicans. So, for example, you have a lot of companies who have pledged to not support any of those Republicans, but they're donating to the National Republican 
campaign committee, which is the fundraising committee for the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives, and is going to be supporting the reelection of 130 plus members of the House of Representatives, uh, two thirds of them uh, Republicans who 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 took that vote uh, to overturn the Electoral College results. So it's hard for me to say if you've made that pledge, but then you're turning around and donating to the NRCC or the, the same on the Senate side, the NRSC, that seems to be against it, at least the spirit of a pledge, not to support uh, the folks who were perpetrating the lies that really led to the violence that day. What do you think the limits are on how corporations should be held accountable? And who do you think, besides people like yourself, who are really deeply documenting things as journalists, who should be looking into this? I think that corporations have an obligation to match up their political giving with their stated public values. Uh, Corporations spend a lot of time crafting an image, uh, and a lot of that goes beyond just selling products or services. They want to stand for something. One of the groups that I'm watching and that I think is becoming more effective are groups of activist shareholders. Uh, There's been a big move to add more transparency to political spending that corporations make. So that, to me, is the most powerful lever. But also the employees of these companies who definitely want to work for a place that they feel is living up to the values that they were told when they when they signed on and then and consumers as well. So I think there's a lot of different pressure points. It's tough though because this is a system, this idea that you write a $5,000 check to congressman X and then when you need a meeting, you know who to call and you get your meeting and you can shape legislation in ways that benefits your company. That's been around for a long time. So it's it's hard for a lot of these companies to let some of that go. Right. It's the mother's milk of politics, you know, money. Honestly, it's remarkable to me. You know, you live long enough, you see a million things. 15 years ago, some corporate leaders were writing letters to President Bush in support of extending the Voting Rights Act. Are corporations now doing an about face or do they always play all sides conditionally? You are absolutely right that not so long ago, you're not talking about ancient history, the the early 2000s, the mid 2000s, this was not a partisan issue that corporations could weigh in in defense of voting rights. And that was seen as a nonpartisan political stance. What you see going on right now is the complete politicization, not only of the methods of voting, but also of the administration of elections themselves. So the dynamics have really changed. And you did see when actually too late, Delta and Coca-Cola came in and said that they oppose the Georgia voting law. It was after it was signed into law, but they did issue fairly strong statements. And the Georgia legislature attempted to retaliate. If corporate money ends up following political sentiment, one thing that's interesting to look at is like, where is political sentiment going? And the Pew Research Center put out a new poll in the New York Times classifying Americans into one of nine political groups. 
The categories with the most Black members were disaffected Democrats and another category they called devout and diverse. This seems to point out some of the reasons why there might have been a bit of erosion in the Democratic numbers in the last election, 2020, compared to 2016. As someone who has been a longtime political observer, political writer, uh, analyst, where do you see the fault lines, not just by Democrat, Republican, but on these other axes like race and gender leading the country? It's more complicated than perhaps people generally think about it. One of the big surprises, I think, out of 2020 especially is looking along the border and Latinos in Texas, in South Florida, trending towards Trump in ways that were unexpected. And of course, this intersects with with class as well, because a lot of them are reacting to very stagnant economic conditions, not just during uh, one presidency or another, but over over decades. So it, to me, is about actually creating material progress. I see these as all interrelated, meaning this fight over voting rights that we have, that's going to be a prerequisite to create the kind of change that would actually address the concerns of these communities. I think ultimately people don't just want to vote. They want uh, a better life. Right. Absolutely. Both in personal conversations and also in things like the Twitterverse, you see a huge amount of just everything from resentment to despair on the part of some African-Americans in particular that people seem to benefit from the Black vote as something that affects democracy but don't want to actually protect Black voters. How's that going to play out for the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party? I think it depends on on what happens. But I understand it completely, and I see it as absolutely uh, essential. I think everyone knows that Joe Biden would not be president and the Democrats would not control the House and the Senate without the strong support he got uh, from the African-American community. In fact, it was the African-American community in, in South Carolina specifically that really rescued his campaign. But you have to take this fight on on voting rights and it has to happen at the federal level. If that doesn't happen, there will be a lot of people that are disaffected. So what gives you joy about the work that you do? You're dealing with some pretty heavy things. So what makes you keep doing this and what gives you joy about it? That's a great question. (laughs) That's a great question. And I admit, things can't seem bleak. But I do believe in the power of an informed public. That's why I, I try to dig through these FEC reports, try to get people information about what powerful institutions are doing, how they're exercising their political power. And I do feel that change is possible and can come. For example, just in 2008, there wasn't a single Democratic nominee who even supported the concept of legalizing same-sex marriage. That wasn't, you couldn't be mainstream and have that. You know, and so here we are 13 years later, and you couldn't 
really have a serious run for for on the Democratic side and hold that view. And of course, it's now legal in all 50 states as well. So there was a, a, a pretty good amount of progress. And so when you see these problems at sea seem intractable, I do think that over the long run, uh, what what motivates me and what keeps me engaged is I think it is possible to see change, but it's not going to happen if people lose their interest and lose their engagement and get disillusioned with the whole system. Judd, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That was Judd Legum. Subscribe to his newsletter, Popular Information, by looking up popular.info. Each week, we've been bringing you, our listeners, updates on COVID-19 and the incredible women of color working to combat it. One of those is our regular contributor, Dr. Kavita Trivedi. She's a public health expert based in the Bay Area and consults with businesses and organizations on COVID-19 safety. Dr. Trivedi, welcome to Our Body Politic. Thanks, Fry. Nice to be back. One of my friends calls this era pandemonium because it's not the same pandemic, but it's not not a pandemic. <laughs> what, what are you thinking we're in? Is the pandemic over? No, definitely not. It's seriously not over in most parts of the world. And we are so incredibly lucky to have uh, a vaccine that can end the pandemic. However, we need to vaccinate the global population not only to protect everyone, but also to prevent these new variants from developing, which are inevitable as the virus continues to move from person to person and mutate and become more fit uh, as it does that. So no, we're not done with the pandemic yet. Although in some places I know in the U.S. it feels like we are getting back to normal. And let's start going into a little bit of the science. Does mixing vaccines help? Do you think we'll need boosters? Yeah, great question. So does mixing vaccines help? We have some recent pre-print publications around mixing vaccines. And it does look like if you get one shot of Pfizer followed by one shot of AstraZeneca a few weeks later, that can boost your immune system to higher levels than just getting two shots of AstraZeneca. So mixing vaccines is absolutely on the horizons. And, you know, it is something that definitely will help global vaccination because in many places you don't have uh, an option of which vaccines to get. So if there is only one type of vaccine available uh, one week and then a different vaccine available four weeks later, it's good that we have this data to show us that that is a reasonable strategy. And then in terms of boosters for I, we have more and more data showing us that the, especially the mRNA-based vaccines that we have available to us in the U.S., these are the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, both of them are showing us long-term immunity. We are seeing um, memory B cells, memory T cells. So these are parts of our immune system that are learning how to combat not only one particular form of the COVID-19 virus, but many different variants. So it is likely that we may not need any boosters at all because so far, 
our current vaccines are very capable of dealing with the variants that are that are circulating. Yeah. Well, let's move on actually to the Delta variant. One thing I'm mm-hmm. thinking about as I choose when to mask and when not to mask as someone who's fully vaccinated and really happy to be is this Delta variant. How will the the risks of that figure into our personal math as individuals about vaccination? The Delta variant is certainly testing us right now, right? We are seeing cases go up in communities that do not have a high vaccination rate. And certainly kids under 12 years old who remain vulnerable to the Delta variant because they are not vaccinated, we need to be looking out for them as well. I think a few things that are important for people to understand is that it looks like two doses of the vaccines do work against the Delta variant. Two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, two doses of the Moderna vaccine, and two doses of the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. It looks like one dose of any of these vaccines are not as protective. And we see a real drop-off in protection when we only are partially vaccinating people against the Delta variant, which was not the case um, against the original wild-type strain. So it's really, I think the Delta variant is showing us that we we really need to get fully vaccinated. So L.A. County just made a decision about its masking policies. What was it? Why was it? And what do you think it says about the pandemic? Yeah. So the World Health Organization made a similar statement a few days ago, encouraging people to mask again. And now L.A. County, with cases going up, has also decided to ask folks to mask again. And and I think this can be confusing, but it's important for us to understand two things. I think, number one, that the vaccines are still extremely good at protecting us from hospitalization, severe infection, and death. However, because of the Delta variant being more prominent, we may consider masking in situations where there still are a lo- potentially a large number of unvaccinated folks. So when you're going indoors to a grocery store, when you're unsure about all the people that are unmasked in that situation, you might consider wearing a mask. If you're going indoors to a restaurant where maybe weeks ago we may have felt more comfortable keeping our masks off, especially because we were vaccinated. Maybe now we need to be even more careful and wear masks in situations where people are unvaccinated around us to help um, decrease uh, transmission of infection and decrease the number of hospitalizations and, and severe infections in our communities. And how do we have conversations with people about vaccinations. And there's people in my extended family who've chosen not to vax. But, you know, if I were talking to my cousin who doesn't want to get vaxxed, how can I have a gentle but important conversation knowing that it's up to her? There was recently, an, I thought, an excellent set of recommendations published um, in the New York Times newsletter outlined by a neonatologist. So I thought it would be useful for me to just outline those five steps on how you have one of these conversations. And I, and I do think actually, Fry, these questions or the, the, the this way of having a difficult conversation can be used in many different topics. First, start with an open question. So the goal here is to establish trust and determine why somebody is hesitant about getting the vaccine. 
And then you want to listen. This is really important and remain open, right? You want to show that you're in favor of vaccination, but also open to the idea that, you know, there are real legitimate reasons why people are fearful of getting the vaccine. Then you can introduce new information that may include explaining how the vaccine was developed or all the rigorous testing that was done and the millions of people now that have received the vaccine and the few number of side effects that have been observed. And then I thought this was really excellent. Ask them what they might be able to do if they're vaccinated or feel more comfortable doing once they're vaccinated. That would be an upside for them, right? Maybe it's traveling. Maybe it's hugging and protecting a grandparent. Maybe it's going to school without a mask. And then the last thing is to take it slowly. You may not change their minds in one conversation, right? And if you move too fast and are more definitive with this conversation, you might it might end up being counterproductive. So it's important to understand that these might be a series of conversations, not just one conversation. The Supreme Court recently upheld the Affordable Care Act, and our legal contributor, uh, Tiffany Jeffers of Georgetown, said it was a win in one sense, but also that others are going to continue to chip away at legislation. What is the state of our healthcare infrastructure coming out of the pandemic with the Supreme Court ruling? How should we think about this? Our healthcare system was certainly taken to the brink during the pandemic. We saw it everywhere. We saw it happen in urban centers and we saw it happen in rural settings. So the analogy I would use is if the healthcare system was a patient, it would have been on its last legs in the intensive care unit, right? That That is how much we saw the healthcare system struggle and care suffered during the pandemic, both for patients with COVID-19 and for patients with, you know, regular problems, heart attacks, heart failure, COPD exacerbation. So a big lesson learned is we have to learn from this near disaster and prepare now for the next emergency and next pandemic. All of this seems anxiety producing. How do we deal with the anxiety of constantly keeping up on things and and how can we take care of our mental health? Yeah, it's a... It's a great question. And I was just telling you that I woke up this morning and and read, you know, all these new articles about COVID. And it definitely feels like there is movement and change every single day. First of all, we have to be good to ourselves and understand that this is a really hard time for all of us. And we need to show compassion to ourselves and to others. And then I think especially in the workplace, in the healthcare setting, We just need to give each other a break and flexibility to take care of ourselves and our families. And and it's just really important for us to acknowledge that mental health has really suffered both for the young and for the old, right? For children as well. And we really need to just acknowledge that and help us ground ourselves so that we can be there to help the rest of our families get through this as well. Dr. Trivedi, great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, Farai, as well. That was Dr. Kavita Trivedi. We'll have her back again soon to keep us informed and involved in fighting back COVID-19. All social movements have life cycles when different groups of people engage around a cause and times when people disengage. 
At least two polls have found that fewer people who are not Black themselves support the Black Lives Matter movement today. A year ago in June 2020, USA Today and Ipsos found that 60% of U.S. adults trusted the Black Lives Matter movement. A year later, that number has dropped to 50%. A morning consult Politico poll saw a similar drop from May 2020 to this year. At the same time, support among Black Americans stayed strong. Nesreen Malik thinks a lot of us are missing the point. She's a British Sudanese columnist for The Guardian and author of the new book, We Need New Stories, The Myths That Subvert Freedom. She outlines six myths that get in the way of social progress. Donald Trump's election in the U.S. and Brexit in the U.K., where Malik lives, inspired her to rethink the way we talk about politics. I had an epiphany that we were stuck, and particularly in the U.S., stuck thinking about life and politics in terms of right and left, in terms of conservative and Democrat, when actually we should be thinking more about life in terms of winners and losers, insiders, outsiders, the establishment, the marginalized, those at the top of the hierarchy and those at the bottom or the middle of the hierarchy. So I began to think that the problems that we were constantly revisiting The struggles with racial equality, the struggles with gender equality, all these things were movements for equality that were being blocked or pushed back by the insiders, the winners, the establishment. And those people are not particularly wedded to any ideology. For example, take Derek Chauvin's guilty verdict for the murder of George Floyd. Malik says it's a mistake to think it was the result of the justice system working and that we shouldn't buy into the myth of harmful identity politics. That people of color are getting together to basically undermine the political system and to make demands for their own identities in ways that stop us from reaching wider goals, uh, whether they be economic or social or uh, political, because everyone's kind of fighting for their little bit of the pie. So the way the myth works is that it takes this very potent, extremely threatening, extremely effective movement for equality and freedom and smears it as violent, as destructive, as vandalism, as threatening the kind of pristine, benign workings of the state that would have found justice for George Floyd anyway. But it would not have happened without that street movement. From the moment the phone camera began rolling, when Derek Chauvin put his knee on George Floyd's neck, everything that led to the trial was crowdsourced, right? The evidence was crowdsourced. The moral outrage was crowdsourced. The pressure on politicians was crowdsourced, and that was via the practice of identity politics. It was via the practice of Black people, people of color, and their allies going out onto the streets in the largest street protests in the U.S. and the largest global movement for a single cause. So the accountability always rests with those on the inside, those in power, those at the top of the hierarchy and the establishment. What we have to understand is that until we are on the inside, our role is to just constantly push back and constantly maintain the pressure. That's not a matter of accountability. That's just a matter of like 
life and death, basically. You know, it's just it's just the position that we are in by existing in these societies. When we see things in the long lens of history, when we see the civil rights measures or policies that were secured, when we see the laws that were passed, what we don't see is the messy, consistent, unruly behavior that preceded it. And that is identity politics, and it works. When looking at how COVID-19 disproportionately impacts people of color, Malik says we should focus on the structure of the economy. A lot of the prosperity, and this is a, a large theme in the book, that for there to be winners, there must be losers. A large way in which our prosperity is accumulated, particularly in America, is by chipping away at the rights of workers. That is the only way that huge amounts of prosperity can be accumulated. It happened in the slavery era. The wealth of the U.S. could not have amounted to such a great deal if it were not off the back of unpaid labor. And in the modern age, the way that people's wealth accumulates is via breaking away people's employment rights the curtain is stripped away when COVID happens, you realize that what you're doing is creating a large precarious group of workers that are racialized and from minorities and marginalized in many ways in terms of their employment rights. And all that is required for them to be pushed off the edge is one little virus, right? Like that is what we need to learn is that for us to maintain our levels of economic success, we have to have a large cohort of people functioning on the absolute brink all the time and hoping that nothing pushes them off the edge. So this myth that those on the inside or those who are successful have achieved their success because of their talent and their hard work is a way to subvert the calls for freedom on the part of workers, primarily racialized workers, who want to explain that your prosperity is off the back of not their work, but their employment rights. Malik says she hopes that identifying the myths will be empowering. One thing I say at the end of the book is that what the Black Lives Matter movement taught me or practically showed me something that I had a hunch or I felt instinctively before was that there are a lot of us. And the way the myths subvert freedom is to convince us that there aren't that many of us. And by not showing us on TV, not putting us on podcasts, not publishing our books, stopping us from finding each other and making us feel that there is this dominance of one demographic, one kind of class of winners that is constantly dominating us from the airwaves. And one thing that um, I believe in very strongly and I would like people to take away from the book is that there are a lot of us and all we have to do is find each other. That was Nezreen Malik, columnist for The Guardian and author of We Need New Stories, Myths That Subvert Freedom, out now. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. Joining me this week is our body politic contributor, Tiffany Jeffers, our legal analyst and Georgetown law professor. Welcome back, Tiffany. Thanks, Farai. 
And our body politic contributor, Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th, joins us as well. Hey, Aaron. Hey there, Farai. Aaron, it is a nice, hot political summer. So what are we sipping on today? Other than the air conditioning, I mean, mm. we are sipping on a lot. So let's get right to it. We are coming in hot because we have big news this week out of the Supreme Court, which just upheld Arizona voting restrictions, saying that it does not violate voting rights and isn't racially discriminatory in a 6-3 vote. Tiffany, I'm coming to you first to get your reaction to this ruling. If you thought the Roberts Court in Shelby County dismantled the Voting Rights Act, I, apparently we hadn't seen anything yet because what's happened is that when governments, when entities and when people, when voters are going to try to challenge these restrictive voting laws that are coming out of Republican-led states, there's essentially now no way that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is going to be able to protect them. Section 2 was all we had left of the Voting Rights Act. The only thing left essentially protecting the right for people, for everyone to vote, for voters to not be inhibited or restricted by their government, for discriminatory practices of closing polls early in certain areas, of not collecting ballots in certain communities. For those types of discriminatory practices to be legal, that's what's going to be allowed now based on this ruling. And and Justice Kagan has a lot to say about it. She calls out what Georgia's trying to do in her dissent. This is not a good day for people who believe in democracy. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in on Arizona. Of course, this is where Senator Kirsten Cinema is, who is one of the, you know, centrist mansionites, if I can coin that phrase. It's particularly resonant for me to look at the modern history of Arizona and how it keeps coming up in civil rights and voting rights over and over again, and also the poll position that Senator Cinema has in the questions of whether the legislature will take on voting rights. Yeah, right. I mean, the Justice Department just filed that lawsuit against my home state of Georgia this past week, accusing the state's new election laws of discriminating against Black voters. Let's listen to Merrick Garland, the attorney general, in that news conference last week announcing the complaint. The Civil Rights Division continues to analyze other state laws that have been passed, and we are following the progress of legislative proposals under consideration in additional states. Where we believe the civil rights of Americans have been violated, we will not hesitate to act. So, Farai, here you see, you know, the Justice Department once again attempting to be proactive on voting rights. What does this tell you about the Biden-Harris administration's tactics on voting rights in kind of the post the For the People Act vote, not knowing what's going to happen with this John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act? What do you think? It seems as if the Justice Department, which, of course, you know, has its own structural integrity and can make decisions of its own, is going to forge ahead in looking at the issue as a national issue and as a state's issue in terms of whether or not the rights of citizens of certain U.S. states are violated when it comes to voting. You know, it breaks down to like civics, which I still had to take. It's not taught as much anymore. You know, the judiciary, the legislative, the executive branch, you know, they don't all have to be in sync. And it seems as if a lot of the action to protect voting rights is going to come either from the influencer power of the White House on Congress or from the attorney general's office. Can I throw something in? So recently, on June 30th, the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States released a report. It's on the White House website. And the title is The Contemporary Debate Over Supreme Court Reform, Origins and Perspectives 
It's written by Harvard Law professor Nicholas Bowie. And this talks about how the Supreme Court undermines democracy in that these are not elected officials. And if you look at the history of the Supreme Court, what's happened is that these, by a majority, five or six Yale and Harvard graduates have upended rights that our legislature, our elected officials, and the administration have implemented. We think of the Supreme Court through the lens of Brown, but we forget Dred Scott. We forget Plessy. And we forget that oftentimes in situations where our legislature has been unanimous, but where the elected officials put in office by the people have said one thing, then the court says from their high bench, no, no, sorry, that is not what the Constitution actually says, and you are not permitted to do what the will of the people actually is. So I encourage listeners to read this commission. What level of authority do we really want these individuals to have that are not elected officials, that we've just given carte blanche the ability, they've actually given it to themselves, if you look at Supreme Court history and the Marbury versus Madison decision, to make a determination of what is constitutional and what is not. Thanks for that, Tiffany. You know, I'm still learning so much about how our government works, like 25 years into covering the government. And I have to say that just from the inside, I have so many conversations with Black women and women of color who are spiritually exhausted by being the equivalent of the Night's Watch. You know, for any of you who who watch Game of Thrones, it's like there's these guys who are just like standing up on this wall, protecting everyone. No one even sends them fresh fruit and vegetables. <laughs> They're just kind of up there. And I kind of feel like, you know, that's the metaphor that sticks for so many Black women and women of color I know. It's like we're up here on the wall protecting your rights, giving you the chance to live in a democracy that we can't even access in its fullness. It's just really hard to watch, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, look, I literally just got off tour with the Black Voters Matter bus. These women just really asking where are Black Americans supposed to go for redress? Is it the Supreme Court? Is it the Department of Justice? These are the questions that are on on folks' minds as they watch this voting rights battle just continue to unfold. And Tiffany, to your point, I will definitely be reading that report, which sounds very interesting, and bring back civics, long live civics uh, in our education system. But here, here. <laughs> you know, speaking of commissions, let's go to January 6th, which we cannot forget. This week, House Speaker Pelosi announced that there's going to be a select committee to investigate the attacks. Let's listen to a clip of her talking about that. The House will be establishing a uh, select committee on the January 6th insurrection. Again, January 6th was one of the darkest days in our nation's history. I've said it now three times. So in response, you have Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy threatening to remove any GOP House member from their committee assignments if they accept Pelosi's offer to be on that select committee. Farai, what does this threat from McCarthy say to you? I'm not surprised, Aaron. You know, the Republican Party has been vociferous in just blocking its own participation in investigating this. And in fact, you know, McCarthy just met with some of the officers who survived the attack and defended the Capitol. And we can't forget that three officers lost their lives, you know, one from a medical condition and two more from suicide. And these officers, regardless of their political party, are saying, do not whitewash this. Do not disappear this from history. But he did not promise to talk to his members about the insurrection 
election and its aftermath. And right now we're seeing that he's made good, essentially, by saying that he will undermine the careers of any Republicans in Congress who participate in this. So this is a signal that says we we can't talk about this. And that's really dangerous for this society. Absolutely. I think, you know, regardless of your politics, having an, an accurate and honest record of, of what happened on that day uh, for the American people is really something that is important and that should not get lost in partisan politics. I want to go to another big news item this week, uh, and that is the Trump Organization and its CFO, Alan Weisselberg, uh, being charged in a tax-related investigation. Tiffany, what can you say about these charges and, and what can happen to the Trump Organization as a result? So it's important to remember legally corporations uh, function as people. And so it's important also not to conflate the Trump Organization with Donald Trump himself. So we're looking at charges against the corporation, the Trump organization that holds his name, and its CFO, Weisselberg. And what this means is that for the corporation, there could be fines, there could be mandated oversight in its financial practices. It could mean incarceration time for if the CFO is convicted, but it doesn't at this point have any criminal implications for Donald Trump himself. But it seems that the prosecutor would likely be working to get inside information from Weisselberg, potentially some type of agreement, some type of plea deal. Based on what evidence they have, I think Donald Trump is the big fish they'd like to secure a conviction against. But at this stage, again, important to remember that it's just the Trump organization and its CFO who have been criminally charged with these tax-related crimes. Yeah, that's a really good point. So, Farai, I mean, what does this mean for former President Trump, his political image, his influence? There are people, you know, who still believe that former President Trump is the president, that he's just in absentia awaiting people to put him back in the White House. You know, in a culture war, sometimes any action can be leveraged for power, especially if you are not bound by facts, if you are bound by, quote, alternative facts, the hit that keeps on giving from Kellyanne Conway. So I do worry a little bit, not that it changes anything, that the investigation into the Trump organization will end up bolstering some of his supporters. I agree, Farai. And what's interesting about Donald Trump being back on the campaign trail is that rally he had in Wellington, Ohio. I watched portions of it and it was difficult to watch, I have to be honest. There's no platform. There's nothing but grievances, fear and anger, lots of rage emanating from Donald Trump and his supporters are eating it up. It's a, it's a scary sight. His supporters will follow him to the ends of the earth. And we saw that at his first rally back on the campaign trail recently. Yeah, Tiffany, I want to jump in here because uh, l- let's listen to a little bit to former President Trump at that rally in Wellington, uh, right outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And we're going to elect an amazing slate of proud American first Republicans next year. America first. So, Farai, I mean, how much impact do you think that Trump's revenge plan is going to have on the midterms? Yeah, that's a phrase from Politico, the the idea of of a revenge plan. I mean, you know, you do start seeing, again, looking at um, some of the the far-right media outlets, you are starting to see some people who are Trumpist saying that Trump is no longer the standard bearer for his own ideology. So it's like, it's not that 
these supporters are becoming more centrist, but they're saying, you know what, someone else needs to step into his place. And I actually think that there will be, there there already are a wide range of elected officials in the federal government, in, in the legislature, who have very Trumpist ideologies, not all of them, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, you know, some that are much more ready for prime time in a traditional sense. And I do think that, that it's going to be a really interesting and complicated moment for the Republican Party where Republican centrists still are not really finding a lot of traction. You know, this is a party that was willing to exile Liz Cheney from a leadership position. So we will see how former President Trump does in maintaining a base of support, but I don't think that his ideological framework is going anywhere, even if he doesn't become prominent again. I want to turn to another hot debate topic we've covered because there's a new development. Nicole Hannah-Jones and her tenure at the Husband School of Journalism and Media at the University of North Carolina. This week, we found out that the board has decided to grant tenure to Professor Hannah-Jones. Farai, how does the treatment of Nicole Hannah-Jones relate to the questions of what good journalism is, including objectivity? Obviously, you and I both know Nicole Hannah-Jones, and I have not only been watching this through the lens of her work, and of course, that is Pulitzer Prize-winning work, but also through the work of people like Lewis Raven Wallace, who wrote a book and does a podcast, The View From Somewhere, talking about how journalistic objectivity, which certainly I was taught was the prized, you know, standard, has been used to veil different people's political and economic interests. People like Wallace point out that journalists who question authority, as Ida B. Wells did many, many decades ago, as Nicole Hannah-Jones is now, uh, are told that their work is not up to par or held to higher standards. You know, there was so much pseudoscience of race, uh, you know, throughout history in journalism. You think about super predators, that was pseudoscience. Crack babies, pseudoscience. This is essentially disinformation that got embedded in the news under the veil of like, we're just being objective, but it had no actual basis. And so then you have people like Nicole Hannah-Jones talking about things that actually happened, but that are viewed as threatening. So I think that it really points out how much homework that the whole field of journalism still has to do, as well as the very complicated donor relations. You know, in the end, this boils down in part to money and to, you know, a donor that was opposed to a prominent award-winning journalist. Yeah, I think the whole country still has a lot of homework to do around these issues. And, and the uh, university setting is just the latest place where we see that playing out. Tiffany, what role do you think that journalism like the 1619 Project plays in our body politic? It's the most important role that we have to ensure that our voices are heard. When I say our voices, I mean my voice, Farai's voice, Aaron, your voice as um, Black women, as women of color, in roles, particularly journalism and law, where the standard, again, is white and male. Um, I spent the majority of my career trying to fit myself, my round self, into a square peg because I never understood that the law, in all of its quote-unquote objectivity, was from the frame of white male land-owning slave owners, right? Everything that Nicole Hannah-Jones has endured as it relates to the 1619 Project and earning tenure at UNC is 
maybe on a smaller scale, a struggle that many Black women and women of color face in their everyday lives of trying to fit into a white male dominated image when we clearly don't and making us feel as if something's wrong with us when we point out that, hey, these clothes don't fit. Hey, this frame doesn't fit. And so I think it's critical that we continue challenging notions of objectivity, both in journalism and in law, but also just in the world as we exist. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Tiffany. So with that, I mean, wow, the tea was caffeinated this week. Uh, Both of you, thank you so much for uh, your insights and helping us to unpack and sip this tea. Well, Erin, it has been epic as usual. And you know what? I know that you are working on something special. Why don't you tell us about it before we wrap up? Well, thank you, Farah, for mentioning that. I am pretty excited. Uh, This weekend, as we mark this country's birthday with the 4th of July holiday, we are also launching a project that I am helming over at the Philadelphia Inquirer. It's called A More Perfect Union. Over the next year, we're going to be examining a lot of the institutions that were born in Philadelphia alongside our young democracy and, and what their profound impacts on racism and inequity continue to be on this country today. So I hope everybody will give that essay a read, check it out, share it. Really appreciate it. We're going to have to leave it there. It was so nice talking with both of you, Tiffany and Farai. Until next time. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. That was Tiffany Jeffers, Georgetown law professor and legal analyst here at Our Body Politic, and Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th. Thank you so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Jen Chien is executive editor. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by associate sound designer Kojin Tashiro. Our producer is Priscilla Alabi. Julie Zan is our talent consultant. Emily Daly is our assistant producer. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Elizabeth Nakano, and Vita Chand. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. Mm-hmm.